A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is not just another episode. We're actually ready to launch our next series, a very special occasion. Um, the series this time is going to be about the Valaj and Yeshiva, which I'll get to in a second. Just want to uh, give some thank yous on this momentous occasion to the production staff of uh, Jewish History Soundbites, who, as usual, we would not be able to do anything without uh, their help at every step. Um, Literally, nothing could ever get done. I can't do these things alone. So all those who help out with making Jewish History Soundbites happen, and of course to the listeners, the great community of Jewish History Soundbites listeners, the, uh, you know, just... just, uh, the fact that you're there, the listening, the feedback, I always appreciate it. Try to share letters from time to time. I mean, uh, this keeps me on my toes also. Just uh, have to be careful anything I say. Just uh, the last episode I said that uh, um, Yeshiva College, later became Yeshiva University, was on uh, the Lower East Side when Ramesha Salavechi came, and I immediately got uh, an email. Nope, it was already on the West Side when he came. It moved to this and this year. You know, and had to double check that beforehand, and just a just a small example, obviously. But the, I'm always kept on my toes. The quality of listeners is amazing, so thank you all. And here we go into our new series. Um, what's interesting is if we jump to the end of the story uh, before we go to the beginning of the story of Valajin, the Valajin, the great Valajin Yeshiva. Um, we go to the closing of the Yeshiva just for just as an opener, the great Nitziv of Alajan, who was the Rashiva for a large bulk of the Yeshiva's history, he wrote a letter the couple of day or two after the Yeshiva was closed to the Gaboim of the Yeshiva, the the uh, people in Minsk and Vilna who ran the fundraising and uh, oversaw the Yeshiva's affairs. And he writes to them about the closing of the yeshiva. And he dates the letter on top. Doesn't write the exact date. 
and he writes, it was the week of Parsha's boy, which is this week's Parsha, and he writes, it's Shavua, uh, the week of Kala Goresh Yigoresh Eschem Mizeh. And he quotes a Pasuk from the Parsha of Kala Goresh Yigoresh Eschem Mizeh, which in its context in the Parsha is talking about, um, about, you know, the Jewish people leaving Egypt, which would be a good thing, a positive aspect of being chased out. They're being chased out of Mitzrayim. But the, but the Nitziv was borrowing the language of the Torah and using it in the context of what happened to them in Valajin. That it was, it's over, they've chased us out of Valajin. And that's how he chose to open his letter describing what had happened about it being closed. And it was actually this week that it was closed, and that's why the Nitziv was saying it's from this week's Parsha, and it's actually right around this time, um, possibly on Dalid Shvat, maybe the day before, the day after. In other words, it's right around now, and it's exactly 128 years since the closing of Alajan, um, which is a very significant date because everyone knows that 128 years is... His 128th anniversary is very, very important. And um, so that's when it was closed. So by telling the story, perhaps it's a form of reopening it, of getting it open again, of getting involved and telling its story makes it makes it alive and people connected and feel uh, how it, our roots are, are somewhat in the Valajan and in its story and in the story of the great personalities that led it. Now, an enormous amount has been written about Valajan in the Latin, especially in recent decades, and all kinds of books in Hebrew and English and scholarly, and there's collections of memoirs that have been put out, and all, 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 all kinds. The leading one, obviously, is the one about the uh, great Lithuanian yeshivas of the 19th century by Professor Shol Stempfer, uh, probably the best book on the subject, but there's been a, a, a large amount has been written, and if everyone's been reading one book or another about it, then what is the purpose of Jewish History Soundbites doing a series about it? So, first of all, because it's still interesting, no matter how much has been written about it. And second of all, the the story it can be told as not just the history of the yeshiva, but it leads us to so many places and. In this in this series, we're going to be exploring not only the institution and the structure of the yeshiva and the history of the yeshiva through the years, but also how they did their fundraising, which leads us across the Russian Empire and other places. It's about the people who were involved in the yeshiva, the leaders, and what were they like, and the Talmidim, the students of the yeshiva, the alumni, and what they accomplished in a very diverse uh, fields, the Torah of Alajin, about how how, how it, it it reflects the context of the Jews in the Russian Empire at the time, about the changing times in the later stages of the yeshiva. It's going to bring us to talk about Haskalah and the Enlightenment and how that infiltrated the yeshiva and how there were maskilim within the yeshiva. It leads us to Zionism, about how the Chibasiyin, about how that was also part of of Alajan in its later stage. We're going to talk about the closing of the yeshiva. Why did it close? When did it close? What led to its closing? How did it reopen afterwards? And it did never attain its former glory. Why not? 
you know, and and everything. It it's a really a springboard to various other topics about how it starts with Reb Chaim Velazhner and his vision, which we're going to discuss in this episode. And then it leads to eventually the Nitziv solidifying his control over the yeshiva. And how does he do that? Who are the other contenders for being the Rosh Yeshiva at the time that the Nitziv took over from his, from not his father-in-law, his brother-in-law, something we'll get to in, in a later episode. And there's really uh, so much to cover that it's not just the story of Valajan, but it's really what Valajan led to, the influence that it had on other, on other movements, on other places, and in other uh, events in the Jewish world, the rabbis of the yeshiva took a leading role in Jewish leadership in the Russian Empire, both Reb Itzelov Alajin especially, but also the Nitziv, and um, and others, Reb Chaim Brisker, who was involved in the yeshiva's later years, influenced our world till today with his new style of learning and the students that he produced in the Valajin yeshiva. So... There's, it really is a, is a, is something that can lead us to all kinds of different people and places, which would be, uh, very interesting. So that's a little bit of a preview, an overview of what the Velazhin Shiva is all about and what the series is going to be about. So stay tuned. Stay with us till the last episode. It's going to be a fun and interesting and exciting ride. Somewhat like our trips to Velazhin, you know, we become more and more common the last few years. It's not, uh, not, not as, uh, as uncommon as it was in the early years, probably also to do with the fact that the that the Belarus government has made it a tiny drop easier to get into the country. You know, sometimes you can get in without a visa, and the border doesn't take as long, so it got a little easier. But a lot of the groups go to Valazhin, which, you know, there's all kinds of interesting uh, cities nearby. There's the Mir, there's Radin, Chavetz Chaim, and Navardik, and uh, many many other uh, historic Cities, but Valajan is still something special. We go to the actual building of the yeshiva, where there is tables and chairs there, and we could sit down and not only discuss the history and the story, but also uh, even learn a little bit in the uh, in the old base medrash of Valajan yeshiva. The Jewish cemetery is right down the block, and we walk through the town, very quaint and ancient and. The dilapidated wooden homes are original homes, and you still see chickens in the yard and potato patches, and it really gives a picturesque, uh, you know, atmosphere of what a shtetl, what a small little Valazhin shtetl was. And uh, when we go down to the cemetery where Chaim Valazhin and other uh, leaders of the yeshiva are buried, so the visit to Valazhin really brings it alive, and telling the story there is, of course, a different experience. So you'll hear it again when you come with me on one of the trips also to Velazhin. Velazhin is considered the mother of all the modern yeshivas, all the yeshivas in the modern era, not modern yeshivas, <laughs> the yeshivas in the modern era. And the question is, why? What 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 makes Velazhin? Why not any other yeshiva? Why not the great yeshivas of Poland in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries? Why isn't the Ramaz yeshiva in Krakow considered the mother of all yeshivas, or or the Marshaz yeshiva in Ostroy, or uh, or why does it have to be in in, in the area of Poland altogether? Why isn't the Chassam Soifer's yeshiva in Pressburg, which was founded at almost the same time, just a couple of years after Velazhin, why isn't that considered the mother of all yeshivas? Or or the great yeshiva in Saloniki, um, which existed before Velazhin, why why isn't that uh, the 
the uh, the mother of Elijah. What made what made, in other words what made Elijah different, and why did is it in, its its influence uh, um, quantified in a much in a much greater uh, way than any other place before or after it. So we have to look a little bit at the context of the Jewish world at the time of the founding of Elijah and uh, the background as to what yeshivas were at the time, the Jewish world in general, and yeshivas specifically during the time that Velazhin was founded by Reb Chaim, Reb Chaim Velazhin. So the the Jewish world, um, first we'll talk about yeshivas in general. We know that yeshivas always existed. Yeshivas existed uh, pretty much as long as the Jews have been in exile, maybe even before. And um, the Greatest book on on that, by the way, is uh, is uh, Professor Mordechai Breuer from the uh, Yaki Breuer family, who wrote a book in Hebrew, Ahalei Torah. So it's in Hebrew, and it's only about a thousand pages long. So anyone who's interested in reading it, but if you do get around to it, it's fantastic, and he profiles the history of all all the yeshivas uh, in in the last thousand years, the structure and the learning and the people and the everything about it. Absolutely an amazing uh, process and journey through different countries uh, of the Jewish world in the last thousand years. But um, even before a thousand years ago, in Bavel, there were yeshivas, the Chazal tell us there was, you know, yeshivas there. And then in Ashkenaz, in in uh, the Span- the Spanish diaspora, especially after the um, the expulsion, it ended up all over. There are yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael. There are yeshivas everywhere. So what again? What what was it about those yeshivas? So if we focus on the few hundred years leading up to the founding of Elazhin, the yeshivas in Poland, um, the Kingdom of Poland, it's before the partition, before it's Russia, the Kingdom of Poland. There are mainly two types of yeshivas. There are the type that are belong to the com- community, the kahal. In other words, it's a kehila institution. It's one of the various institutions that belong to the Jewish community. Uh, King uh, Sigmund, whatever, however you pronounce it, in the uh, 16th century, 1500s, gives, 1567 if I'm not mistaken, gives a license to the Jewish community in Lublin to found a yeshiva. And in there it says uh, that the Rosh Yeshiva is, is absolved from taxes. He has a standing in the Jewish world. Not only that, he says that the king, this is the official king's uh, proclamation of the opening of yeshiva, that they have a license to open a yeshiva. He says that they, uh, the, the, the Talmudim who come to the yeshiva do not have to pay tuition. Which also Velazhin continued, by the way. Tuition is a relatively new concept in the issue that doesn't come from Velazhin, and um, and and they had they they you know, they should appoint a, a Rosh Yeshiva, and he should do whatever he has to do in the yeshiva. So that belonged to the Lublin Jewish community. It's interesting to point out. I saw I read recently about um, the two two descriptions in the introduction to Sfarim. Of both written in Poland in the Polish Kingdom in the 16th century by quite famous people who were more known as Poiskim than as Russia Yeshiva. One was the Sma and Bishu Falk, and and he and he writes uh, that his father-in-law, who he names, was a wealthy individual, 
and he generously opened the yeshiva for him. He completely funded it, and he arranged for him to get Talmidim. He recruited his father-in-law, who funded it and opened it, recruited the Talmidim of the yeshiva, and he built him a building. He built a stone structure with several floors, and there was different rooms where they learned, and he thanks his father-in-law that without him he wouldn't have the yeshiva. So that was a private yeshiva owned by the Sma and really his father-in-law that had nothing to do with the Jewish community in Lvov where the Sma lived. Whereas the Taz, Rabbi David Halevi, the Turezov, who lived at Drop after that in Ostroy, um, he actually later on was the rabbi in Lvov and he's buried in Lvov. We go there as well to the Taz's grave um, in Lvov. But he, at the time, he lived in Ostroy, which would, uh, which was actually where the Marsha had a yeshiva. But here, the Taz had a yeshiva, and he thanks the Jewish community of Ostroy for opening, for supporting, for running. They, they, they administrative. They run it. They control it, and they take care of it, and they fund it. So this is a community yeshiva. So those are the two types. The in in Poland at that time. There's the community-run yeshiva as a community institution, and there is the um, the private yeshiva. And that continues for a few hundred years, has its ups and downs. And the main reason it has its ups and downs is because of its structure. If it's a private yeshiva, so that private person who funded it, as was the Ramaz yeshiva 200 years before that, was also private. It was it was funded by, originally by his father, who was a banker from Regensburg and, uh, in Germany, and was wealthy, and he arranged for the Ramah to have, uh, to have uh, an institution of his own. So, so if it was private, then the funding can dry up, potentially, when, it's, uh, when, the funding, when, 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 the, when that person who's funding it is done. Um, so the, and the, uh, the other issue with... But as, if it's a Jewish community, then if the community is wealthy, usually it was the big cities, the big cities were more likely to have a yeshiva because then the kahal was wealthy and they could support it. Generally, these yeshivas were small. Both cases, they were small. And very often in the contract that the rabbi received or the yeshiva received from the community, it was stated how many students they're willing to support. 10, 15, 25, usually not more than that. Sometimes it was 30, 40. If it was very wealthy place, and they're able to support more, but usually not bigger than that. And also, sometimes the community would say, look, we've fallen on hard financial times. We can't collect as much communal taxes as we used to, and therefore we can no longer support a yeshiva, or we can no longer support as many Talmidim as we used to be able to, and therefore the yeshiva would dry up. The main reason why the yeshivas would, 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 would have their ups and downs was also based on the charisma and the fame of the Rosh Yeshiva. The Marsha's Yeshiva in Ostroy was famous, not because it was Ostroy, which today no one heard of, but it was a very large and famous uh, Jewish town at the time, so much so that people nicknamed it Ostroy, they nicknamed it Ois Teira, the sign of Teira. That's how the Jews in their Yiddish uh, nicknamed the town at the at the time. So they, they, they but the the town had a renown, but the marshal was the attraction, and he and he was the pull to the yeshiva. So when the marshal died, the yeshiva wasn't as famous; it wasn't as prestigious anymore. So, as time goes on in the 
waning years of the Polish kingdom, the Jews of the Polish kingdom, especially in the last decades of the Polish kingdom, after Tach uh, Vetat, the Chmelnitsky massacres of 1648-1649, was the, I don't know if the beginning of the end, but from then on it wasn't as great for Polish Jewry as it was beforehand. And in the latter part of the 18th century, in the 1700s, definitely economically, the kingdom was imploding and it was not good for the Jews. Economically, communities became poorer and there were not as many yeshivas around. Um, and, uh, and this affected education. This affected the future of the Jewish people. And one of the main sources of why Reb Chaim started the, the Belazhen Yeshiva is we don't have to guess. We don't have to even make up stories. We can actually know what his what his motives were because he wrote a, an incredible letter called the Igeres Yeshiva in 1802 during Aserisim Eitshuva in Mitzvah Kippur to the Jewish communities across the Russian Empire, and he and he uh, sends this letter to everywhere, and the letter has been is authentic and has is, there have been uh, copies of it written and published. And in there he describes, it's an amazing letter, three pages long. First he describes how he's, people call him the Talmud of the Vilna Gaon, which he was. He was the prime disciple of the Vilna Gaon at the time. And he definitely was, but in his modesty he says, no, I was only privileged to know the Gaon a little bit and to meet him a few times, but how can I consider myself a Talmud of the Vilna Gaon? And Interesting that he actually devotes quite a bit of the letter to discussing that, his relationship with the Vilna Gaon and how, in his modesty, he doesn't consider himself so great uh, as a result. But then he bemoans the state of affairs in the Jewish people, which is a common theme in rabbinic uh, writing throughout history. Everyone always bemoans the state of Jewish affairs and how it's not like it used to be and how Taira has gone down. So that in itself is not such a, a novelty of Reb Chaim writing. But he says, he hints at different causes as to why it has gone down. And uh, it's primarily um, because of the state of affairs in the, the Polish kingdom at the time, that the communities are no longer supporting yeshivas, um, which was the fatal flaw of the system. As soon as a community could no longer afford it, then 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 the then the yeshiva became an economic liability. They couldn't raise enough taxes to support the rosh yeshiva, the building, the students coming in. The yeshiva guys didn't have where to eat, where to sleep because the people couldn't take them in. So the yeshiva simply dried up. The, the yeshiva guys weren't welcome there. And since it was a communally run institution, you have to understand that if it was a communally run institution, so of course there were local students who came. But the ones who really made the core were the foreigners, the outsiders, what we call the out-of-towners, the ones who came to learn in this yeshiva, the ones who came from far away because they were more devoted, they were always in the base measures, they were the ones who, they were, they were the lieutenants of the rest yeshiva because they were far away from their families, so this was their home. And if it was a private yeshiva, then the yeshiva was essentially their host and their father also. But even if it was a communal yeshiva, they remained devoted to the rest yeshiva. And around that, it was kind of like the periphery of that was the locals, which was the opposite of what most institutions of the kahila was. So therefore, if the kahila couldn't afford it, then then the yeshiva dried up. 
So Reb Chaim in his letter, the Yigarasa Yeshiva, is pointing out how in modern times they, the glory of Taira has gone down and the yeshivas have gone down and what's going to be with the future and there's not going to be rabbis, there's not going to be paiskim, there's not going to be Jewish leaders, there's no Talmud Chachamim because the yeshivas are not producing what they used to at this time. And, um, you know, there, there are those who read into this hence is that it, and he's also blaming the, the, um, Hasidic movement, which is possible, he's saying that there's a lack of, uh, uh, you know, a, not as, especially in the early years, the lack of respect for Jewish scholarship, which is debatable if that's what he means. I'm not going to get into the whole uh, Hasidic dispute and Reb Chaim stand on it because I spoke about that in an earlier episode. But it is possible to read that into the letter as well. But overall, he sees the state of affairs is really lousy. And what's he going to do about it? He's not just a critic. He is a doer. That was the, he was a visionary and he was a man of action. He didn't just, like many others, just criticize the state of affairs and bemoan it and say, oh, it's not good and, and that's it. He said, I'm going to get up and fix it. And he says, after going and describing that he's really not worthy and it should really be other people, but other people have been pressuring him to do it. And since no one else is doing it, so he has to do it because he has, someone has to stand up for the Kavadat Torah. So what he's doing is, is that he's opening an institution. Now what's interesting is that here in 1802, he already refers to a group of Talmidim who are with him in Valashin that he's already teaching Torah to. So the date of the yeshiva, the yeshiva's opening is questionable because many referred to 1802 or even 1803 as the opening. It seems that he's referring to an existing small, very low-level, very small-scale yeshiva at the time, but it seems that it already exists. So it could be even 1801 or the beginning of 1802 that it opened up. Um, there's a couple of myths uh, surrounding the opening of the yeshiva also. there's One of them is that the Vilna Gain uh, told Reb Chaim to open it, and first he didn't, and then he did, and he told him, only after I die... There doesn't seem to be any source of that for that. I mean, obviously, you could assume that anything that Reb Chaim did was under the inspiration of the Vilna Gaon. He was a very close Talmud, one of the, one of the closest, if not the closest. He refers to the Vilna Gaon in his Yigeres Yeshiva and his relationship to him, but he does not say that the Vilna Gaon told him to open the Yeshiva, which he probably would have since he's trying to gain support for the venture, you know, moral support and also... Uh, and also uh, mainly financial support, so he would have said that, and um, so that's that's one 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 myth uh, involving the opening of the yeshiva. But it's definitely after the Vilna Gaon had passed on. The Vilna Gaon died in 1798. The yeshiva opened up in around 1802, so it's a few years after. Another one involved the opening of the yeshiva is that I saw this in a couple of places. Is that he opened it to combat the Haskalah, the Enlightenment. Uh, which was sweeping away the Jewish youth. Also, uh, a myth, because 1802, I mean, they heard about it. There was maybe a couple of maskilim in Eastern Europe in 1802, far from a movement, definitely not with any influence or completely negligible influence at the time. It would come a generation or two later, you know, earliest you could call it as a movement in Eastern Europe were the 1830s. 
in Germany it already was. Um, it's hard, it's a hard and far shot to say that he saw it moving from Germany to Eastern Europe. Um, unless someone told me when I spoke about this, I lectured about this somewhere. So someone raised his hand and said, what do you mean? You think Reb Chaim didn't have Ruach HaKodesh? He saw that it was coming, so he preempted it. He made a refuah kaidim wamaka. He preempted it. Okay. It's definitely not something that I would dispute, but it's also a myth involved in the opening of the yeshiva. So what, what, what was the, so he continues, the Gerasa yeshiva, he says to them, send me guys, send me guys to come learn in the yeshiva. I'm going to teach them Torah. He encourages others to do the same. You teach Torah. You should all realize what's happening here. We should all open these style yeshivas. And he says, support me. He says, go, I need, I need, I need your help. I need your funding. I need to, to, uh, build this place and it needs to run. It needs to be long lasting. It needs to be, and he said, it's not about me. We're building a yeshiva as an institution. And therefore, in this letter, he lays all the groundwork of what would become Valajan. Everything is already there. And, 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 and that's what made it unique and that's what made it different. First of all, let's think about Reb Chaim and his position in Valazhin in the town. Valazhin is a town. It's a place on the Jewish map. It's a small little shtetl. And Reb Chaim Valazhin, why would he live in that? Why did he live there? He grew, happened to grow up there. When he grew up there, his first Rebbe before the Vilna Gain was the Shagas Aryeh, who was not known as the Shagas Aryeh then. He was only known as, like that after he died, which is common. But he, um, but he was known as Reb Aryeh Leib Ginsburg. Um, he's also called Reb Leib Rosh Yeshiva. Interesting, because there were yeshivas before Valhajan, and he actually had a yeshiva in Minsk, where he had lived before, and he he had gotten into a dispute with the rabbi of Minsk, uh, the Rebichil Halperin, the author of the Seder Hadaris, which is a history book, so we like him too. And he um, and he spent time in Valhajan, the Shagasari, and then later he was the Rav in Metz in France, which was a big city, a prestigious, wealthy place. So... And and interesting that that um, that even that it even was a big city and a wealthy place because Metz was an area that was sometimes Germany, sometimes France, but it was usually France. And France, for hundreds of years, had not allowed Jews to live in France and had kicked out the Jews. They were the first country to do it, even before uh, actually England was the first one, and then later France, and they did not allow Jews to live there for hundreds of years. So how is there such a prestigious Jewish community in Metz all these years, so much so that eventually the Shagas Arya came there much later, in the in the 1700s? And the answer is that even though they were kicked out, but sometimes the French authorities looked the other way, and there were a few Jewish communities like that for pragmatic uh, reasons, which is an interesting story in itself, but it's the history of the Jews in France, which is off our topic. But in any event... The the Shagas Arye is is Reb Chaim Velazhin's first Rebbe, and and but eventually Reb Chaim becomes the Rav in in Velazhin. So he's the Rabbi in Velazhin. He also was he was actually the Rabbi in in uh, Vilkamir, which is a bigger town than Velazhin for a year, and things didn't work out there. And after a year, he came back to Velazhin, and he never left. He was the Rav there for over forty years, and he never someone of his. Stature could have become the rabbi in a much bigger city, um, which would have been a bigger salary and more influence, perhaps. But he chose to stay in Valajin. and 
So he's the position of rabbi. And at the time, there are many rabbis who have kehillah-supported yeshivas, small yeshivas supported by the Jewish community. So why didn't Reb Chaim just do that? What's the Sigera saying? Yeshiva sending out to the far and near, far-flung Jewish communities of the Russian Empire. The, just just joined the Russian Empire. It was right after the partition of Poland. The Polish kingdom now no longer existed, and now they're all in Russia. And he and he sends this letter out. Why doesn't he just open the yeshiva in Valazhin itself? And the answer is, is because Valazhin is a small town. And they can't support a yeshiva that he envisions of changing the face of 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 Torah and of the of the future of Torah and Jewish leadership in Russia. He he can't do it in in the framework of Alajan. So here he's putting on a second hat. He's the rabbi of the Jewish community, and this institution that he's opening has nothing to do with the Jewish community. It's separate, and that is the first and main and primary chiddush of Alajan. And that's a major reason, probably the main reason why it remains till today the mother of all yeshivas. That idea that it's not dependent, it's not a communal institution, it's independent of the Jewish community. It's, it stands on its own. It's fundraising, it's on its own. It doesn't come from the community chest, treasury. And, um, and uh, there's a yeshiva in my neighborhood, in, in Beit Shemesh. And uh, I remember noticing... We went, there was a Hachanasa Sefer Torah of the yeshiva, and the neighborhood was officially invited. And you saw, you know, a few members of the neighborhood attended, but even the ones who attended it, you see, they weren't very involved, and most of the neighborhood didn't even come. And and the yeshiva was very animated and involved in dancing and music, and they're very excited about their large yeshiva, a couple of hundred guys. And I remember pointing out, I said, you see here the separation between the community and the yeshiva. This is a continuation of Alajan. And that, and that, it's just one manifestation of it is obviously much deeper, uh, um, you know, much more than just superficial things like that. But that's, that's how it plays out in the funding. And think about the genius of Reb Chaim He's asking the Jewish people, the Russian Empire to send their best and their brightest of Alajan, and also to fund for him. So the fundraising, and he eventually sets up a network of fundraisers called Shadarim, Shluchad Rachmana, which it becomes a legacy and a hallmark of the Alajan Yeshiva, that their fund, their fundraising comes from these uh, Shluchim, these emissaries of the Alajan Yeshiva, which spreads the word, and they eventually influence people to come, but also they're the ones who are fundraising for it. So where does the financing come for the yeshiva? From all over. And it goes to Reb Chaim Velazhener, right? The ownership of the yeshiva becomes, uh, and, and who owns the yeshiva? Who becomes the Rosh Yeshiva after the Rashiva passes on? These are also chidushim in Velazhen. There eventually comes to be called, what's called the Beis Harav, which I'll get to in a minute. The family of Reb Chaim Velazhener becomes a dynasty, similar to Hasidic dynasties, that there's an automatic assumption that the son or son-in-law or grandson, someone from the family, not clear who in the family, which becomes a matter, an issue of dispute, also similar to the Hasidic world, and, uh, and, um, and, 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 and they retain what's called the ownership of the yeshiva. They have a new model, right? If it's the Jewish community who owns the yeshiva, then they get to appoint whoever they want as the Rosh Yeshiva. There is no dynasty. It's the Jewish community who owns it. Um, now that it's a 
a supra-communal structure. It doesn't belong to any specific community. So who owns it? Does the Jewish people of the Russian Empire own it? Does the do the donors, the supporters of the yeshiva own it? Does the Russian yeshiva own it? Does his family own it? Who's the owner? But what it fundamentally changes is how the yeshiva is looked at by the local community. Think about how it was before what we described. The the yeshiva is a liability for the community because the community has to support it. The boys have to eat teg, essen teg. They have to eat in local homes by the generosity and the good heart, the good hearts of the locals. If they have the extra food to share, then they share it and they're happy to give it. We're talking about a traditional society that respects Tyra, but it's a matter of finances. Do they have it or not? And, and sometimes the yeshiva is resented because the boy comes in for his lunch and the mother does not have enough food for her children. And now because she said she's going to give food to the yeshiva guy, so this yeshiva bacher comes in, she has to give him food and has to give him a place to sleep, even though there's no room in the house to eat. So sometimes, and that's, that becomes an issue. Over here, the tables have completely turned. The fundraising takes place all over. The shluchim, the, the fundraisers come back, and Reb Chaim has money now to support the yeshiva. So first he's in a local shul, so I don't know if he had to pay rent or not. Eventually they built their own building with funds, but uh, but then eventually they built not only a wooden building, eventually they built a brick building, which is from the last stage of the yeshiva, which is the building we see today on our tours. And But over here, the yeshiva becomes a financial asset to the community, because now, Reb Chaim is dishing out money. He's saying, you want to take a yeshiva guy into your home to sleep, to eat a meal a day, so the yeshiva will pay you three rubles a week. Wow. So they're bringing an in income. So first of all, every community wants to have a yeshiva now because they bring income to the town. The yeshiva is considered an asset, a boon, an economic boon to the town. The yeshiva boy is accorded respect. He's not called a yeshiva bacher. Reb Chaim insists that he be given a new title, a yeshiva man. And they look forward to him coming because to, to eat and to sleep because he's the one who brings in the income for the family. And the whole structure changes and it brings back a tremendous kavod hatayra, a respect for the yeshiva guy, a respect for the yeshiva. And it's a certain distance. It's not part of the community itself. It's looked on as a certain, a certain way as a city on a hill. As this is this is our Valajan, this is the Valajan that belongs to the Jewish people, and this is what's producing the leadership of the Jewish people, this is producing the rabbis, and look at the scholarship that's uh, emanating from there, and that's and that and that completely changes the dynamic of how it's looked at. So you have the structure, you have the financing, and you have how it's separate from the Jewish community. And you have also in the Garasa Yeshiva another point, which later becomes the hallmark of the Yeshiva, is that the Yeshiva survives its founder. It's not based on the charisma of a specific person. Any institution which is based on the charisma of a specific person has limited has a limited lifespan because no one lives forever. And uh, and the graveyard is filled with indispensable people. And and the and Reb Chaim doesn't want that to happen. And he emphasizes in the Igaris HaYeshiva that he's building a institution, a yeshiva, and it's not about him. And it really wasn't, even though he was in a major influence, and he founded it, and he was such a great leader, but it was able to survive him and go into the next generation and the next, because it was never the dependent on the charisma of a specific leader. 
It was about the Velazhin as a yeshiva. And it was about the institution at large. And it was about what the atmosphere was and the Talmudim inside and what was created and the energy that was generated within the walls of the yeshiva, not by a specific individual. And that became the hallmark also of the modern yeshivas, is that even though there were many great personalities in each place, but what made it and what kept it going was the fact that it was an institution that ran on its own. However, this is it's just as important, if not more important, to emphasize that the history of the Valashin, as is the history of many places and things, is not a history of ideas or of circumstances or even of institutions. It's a history of people. It's about the people who were there, who led it, Chaim Velazhener and his successors, and the Beis Harav, and it's about the Talmidim, the ones who studied there, the alumni who came out of there, and they left their impact and imprint on the Jewish world. I remember uh, hearing recently from uh, Professor Emanuel Etkis, the greatest uh, historians of the Jews of Eastern Europe, um, including the Vilna Gain and the yeshiva world, so it's related to this topic as well, um, he, said to, he said to us that there are many historians out there who believe that the circumstances of history create a situation, and the people, the prominent people in each story are minor players, but most of it has to do with the context and the circumstances, and that kind of leads things along, and there are people who rise up to the occasion that the circumstances have brought, but they're not the ones who actually influence or change. And he said, I can tell you I'm an old man, and I've been spent my entire academic career, is what he says, I'm not saying, um, researching individuals for the most part. He's written on the Baal Shem Tev and on the Alter Rebbe and the Vilna Gain and about many others. And he said, "It's the in my in my view is is that it's the people who create and build and influence and change. It's individuals who get up on the stage of history, and the circumstances help. The context helps. It creates a basis for their actions. But the ones who do things are the people, not the circumstances. You need great people to influence events, and it was great people like Reb Chaim Velazhner and his successors." who made Valajan for what it was. It wasn't the building of four walls. It was the people there, who both the leaders and the Talmidim, who, who, who uh, made Valajan what it was. And therefore, the focus of this series is going to be on the people. Now, it's interesting, Reb Chaim Velazhaner, um creates not only Shiva, but he creates a family, a dynasty. Like I said, almost like a Hasidic dynasty, which led Valajan throughout the years until today. Anyone who's a descendant of Rukhaim Velazhner proudly calls himself a member of the Beis Harav, the house of the Rav, of the, of the Rabbi, Rukhaim Velazhner, which the branches of which are many, many. Um, a, a, uh, someone, someone recently told me that his, his children are descendants of the Beis Harav, so his son is really the, supposed to be the uh, Rosh Hashiva of Velazhner today. It said, uh, in that case, there's you know a few hundred others who have the same claim to the title, so go work it out with them. I'm not, so I don't have an issue being the Rashiv of Elijah, but if you are, then there are quite a few individuals who have that claim. So you have um, 
Rabbi Chaim Elijah had two sons and two daughters. One son, Yosef, not much is known about him or his family. His main son was Rabbi Itzala, who took him over. And it was from Rabbi Itzala that a large, a large uh, family came out from um, the, his son-in-law, Rabbi Tzakaliezer Fried, who was anyways connected to the Mesarav through a daughter of Rabbi Chaim Elijah. And the Nitziv, which was, you know, he became synonymous with the name of the yeshiva. And um, Rabbi Itzalaz had a son who was in business, who was not uh, part of the yeshiva directly as the Rosh Yeshiva, but he had a son-in-law, Rabbi Shua Heshelevin, who was later to play a major role in the yeshiva, and his descendants are also part of the Beis Now, Rabbi Chaim Elijah also had two daughters. One was Esther, who married a fellow by the name of Rabbi Hilfried, who one of the hallmarks of Elijah, which also uh, played a role in many yeshivas that were influenced by Elijah, was the idea that there's an assistant Rosh Yeshiva. There's the Rosh Yeshiva who oversees everything, who not only gives the shiurim, but fundraises, and is the administrative head, and everything else. And uh, and he, ha- he hires the Rabbeim, and he's the one who's really in charge. But he also has an assistant Rosh Yeshiva who also gives a shir, who's there more around. And that became a hallmark of Elijah, that there was always a Rosh Yeshiva, and there was always a an assistant, a Mishnah, a Sgan Rosh Yeshiva, the last of which was the famous Reb Chaim Brisker, but there was one all along. And the first one was Reb Chaim Elijah's son-in-law, Reb Hill Fried. Now the Frieds were to play a major role in Elijah and in members of the Beis Harav as descendants of Reb Chaim Elijah. First Reb Hill Fried, then his son, who is not only a grandson of Reb Chaim Elijah, but marries his cousin, the daughter of Reb Yitzel of Elijah, Reb Yitzel Fried, and he becomes the Rosh Yeshiva of and his son, Reb Chaim Hilfried, um, the, the becomes a Rebbe in Valajan. He leaves. He tries to become a Rebbe again. Then Etziv uh, doesn't is not excited about the idea, and that all becomes a story, a saga uh, later on in the history of the yeshiva. And the Frieds remain somewhat involved. Reb Chaim Hilfried actually outlived Valajan and um, was involved in the reopening of Valajan later on. After uh, the clo- at the turn of the century, after the czar, the czar's police had closed it, so and the Frieds uh, remain a, a prominent family. In fact, the Israeli historians, the Ben Shushans, um, are descendants. A couple of historians in Hebrew University um, who made major contributions in Jewish scholar in history scholarship are descendants of the Beis Harav through the the Frieds. Um, and then there was another daughter of Reb Chaim Velazhener named Relka. And she was so prominent that she founded two branches of the Beis Harav. She first married Reb Yosef Soloveitchik from Kovna, who um, his son was Reb Yitzhak Zev Soloveitchik from Kovna. And his son was the Beis Halevi, Reb Yosef Dev Soloveitchik. Um, who later was the Rav in Brisk, but he became a Rebbe in Valajan as a great-grandson of Reb Chaim Valajaner, a prominent member of the Beis Rav. As a Talmud of the Valajan Yeshiva, he becomes the assistant Rosh Yeshiva by Rabbi Yitzchak Fried and later of the Netziv, which led to a major dispute, one of the most famous and legendary disputes in the history of the Valajan Yeshiva about who should be the dominant Rosh Yeshiva, the Netziv or the Beis Halevi. But Rabbi Yosef Dev Halevi Salavechik was the great-grandson of Reb Chaim through this Relka, and all the Salavechiks who came from that, um, their 
first, their 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 one connection through to the Beis Harav is through this uh, Relka. They, of course, many of them also were descendants of Reb Chaim because Reb Chaim Brisker, the Beis Halevi's son, ends up marrying the granddaughter of the Nitziv. So you know they. The real, really like a Hasidish dynasty. Everyone's intermarrying here and all staying connected. So most of the Sol- many of the Soloveitchiks are descendants through more than one way to the Beis Sarav, to Reb Chaim Lajner. But this Relka, this, her husband, this Soloveitchik died uh, somewhat young. So she remarries, Reb, I think his first name is Reb Shloima, uh, Kahana Shapiro, another prominent Lithuanian rabbinic family. And the, her grandson through this marriage, was Reb Zalman Sender Kahana Shapiro, who also learned in Valazhin, and who starts a yeshiva after Valazhin's closure in Malch. And he was a yeshiva in Malch, and his son, Rabbi Ram Doiv Ber Kahana Shapiro, who, who's the, who also learns in Valazhin, and uh, was the, the famous as the Kovna Rav, the last Rav of Kovna for 30 years until he died in the Kovna Ghetto, was the son-in-law of the Minsker Gadol, Rabbi Yerucham Yehudalei Perlman, one of the great Paiskim, great leaders and great uh, Gedele Yisrael in the generation before the war and during the Holocaust. So Rabbi Ramdoi Berkahana Shapiro not only learned in Velazhin, not only was a great rabbinic leader, but he was also a member of the Beis Harav. And his descendants, obviously, were uh, members of the Beis Harav as well in Israel and America. And so the Kahana Shapiro has come from there. In fact, the name of the yeshiva that Rabbi Chaim Velazhin named the Velazhin yeshiva was um, Eitz Chaim, and uh, a common name for yeshivas, and Eitz Chaim he, Lamachazikim, but other yeshivas, and I think in Saloniki, in fact, the yeshiva was named Eitz Chaim, and there are other yeshivas throughout history named Eitz Chaim. In fact, the um, Kletzk yeshiva was called Eitz Chaim too. So, you know, you could call it Beis Medrash Gavaya, but the original name was Eitz Chaim in Kletzk. But also, Rabzalman Sender Kana Shapiro, his yeshiva in Malch, he called it Eitz Chaim, and it was you know, because Velazhin had closed and he wanted to keep, you know, as if to reopen it to a certain extent. And he himself was a family member of the Velazhin Yeshiva and had learned there. So he called the Malch Yeshiva Chaim. But uh, I don't know if the Malch Yeshiva was actually a real uh, continuation. Anyway, this was, uh, this was part one of our going to be an amazing series about Velazhin Yeshiva. Um, so this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours and trips to the great places of Jewish history in Europe and all over. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.